welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Why You Gotta Be So Mean edition. With me today, we have Opinion Page editor Sarah O'Donnell. Hi there, Emma. Hello. We have uh, City columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Emma. Hello. And my legislative buddy, Stuart Thompson. Hey. How's it going, Tomo? I'm really good. How are you? Fantastic. I'm, I'm good. I've got coffee. Everything's fantastic <laughs> now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I like that we now have a new nickname for Stuart. Thank you. Tomo, yeah. That's it's cool. one of those complicated Aussie nicknames. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew where it came from? Very tough to figure that out. So now it's not every day that you hear the words traitorous bitch on the floor of the legislature. And yet, here we were this week after Sandra Jansen, MLA, gave her first member statement as a member of the NDP caucus. So we're going to take a look at that and also some of the fallout. When it comes to policy this week, it's been all power all the time. We've had coal, we've had PPAs, we've had uh, electricity price caps. So we're going to look at some of the implications for you and also politically for the NDP. And finally, we're going to revisit the impact of the death of four-year-old foster child uh, Serenity. But I want to kick this off this week uh, with a new face inside the legislative building. Now, it's not actually happened through an election. It's Sandra Jansen's security detail, who I met yesterday. I didn't actually meet her because she's a security detail. They're not big on, like, small talk. Mm-hmm. I discovered. Did you guys all watch the the speech that Sandra Jansen actually did in the House? Now, we've talked yes. a lot about uh, on this podcast uh, about kind of abuse and harassment that um, women, in particular, politicians are receiving. Uh, now, it's one thing to see those words, you know, flying around Twitter, on Facebook, just flying around the the web, the hive, if you will. But it's quite another thing to hear it spoken by an MLA on the floor of the House. I think it got an extra power. What were your guys' thoughts here? It's important to remember that Sandra Jansen got her start as a television journalist. I mean, she knows how to read a script. She knows how to put across a story. And I thought it was interesting because she chose quite strategically the the tweets and the comments that she read, because frankly, I've seen far worse things said about Sandra Jansen on Twitter. Uh, Things that, you know, I I think she just decided the language was too unparliamentary. But I thought she crafted that statement with great strategic care. Uh, It had a powerful impact. And, And you saw that even some of the people who'd been the most critical of her decision to cross the floor got up in that standing ovation that she received afterwards. Uh, I thought it, it was it was interesting because I think she had an intuition that if she read the words and read them powerfully, structured in the way that she did, it would have a different impact than just saying on Twitter, people were mean to me. And I think she was completely correct on that assumption. Yeah, no, I was I was very impressed with her speech. I mean, this the fact that it's a signal, I think, that she doesn't plan to just fade into the political wilderness with her floor crossing. And I'm really glad that she got this on the record, enhanced, so that decades from now, however many years from now, people can look back and see, you know, we don't know where Twitter's going to be. We don't know what's going to happen with all that electronic stuff, but we know that Hansard will be there. And so people will have a record of the kinds of things that politicians like Sandra Jansen have been dealing with. And just from our perspective, I don't know if people know this but in our offices at the legislature we have a feed coming in from from the house so uh emma and i were sitting there and the like the minutes before question period generally you're just frantically trying to finish whatever you were doing so you can go up and and watch and i think we were both jolted like it was yeah. something that just kind of you heard it and you were like what is going on and yeah. it was obviously it was the words but it was the delivery too and mm-hmm. it was just kind of the hush that fell over um and 
you know, I was thinking about this, and it did like that the PCs and the Wild Rose, who uh, I I don't think anyone was dismissive, but you did feel like from Sandra Jansen's comments that the NDP were the ones taking this very seriously and reaching out to her. And that's why she ended up crossing the floor, she says, is because they were much more willing to, to say, hey, we've got your back. And that uh, obviously there's there's politics involved there. But I, I do think there's also something else, which is that as a man, it is really hard to truly understand these things. And my experience on Twitter is very different than my wife's experience on Twitter. And I know that just because we were sitting at home when Sandra Jansen crossed the floor. I was on vacation and we both tweeted the same story and I was sitting on the couch with her watching her replies and then my replies and they were incredibly different. So and that's fascinating because I mean Stuart's Stuart's wife, can we say? Laura yeah. Laura Osman is a reporter with CBC. Uh, so I mean she also has a significant Twitter following. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I be that would be that's a fascinating, you know, uh, journalism school study here are two journalists you know one one a white male one a lebanese woman and see how differently people react when they tweet the same story yeah it's an a b test and it's (laughs) but i think like these i've had in my life in the last few years i've had a few moments where i've said oh i've never thought of that and i i don't like to think that it makes me a bad person to have never thought of that but for example walk when i worked late shifts here at the journal i walk home at midnight through downtown Edmonton at you know 12 o'clock 12 30 it never even makes me think twice to do that and often I'm really happy to do it and it's a really happy walk for me because you can kind of decompress but when my wife was talking about that same walk when she does a late shift at CBC it's a very different thing for her to walk home at midnight it's something she has to actually prepare for and you know people at work are like make sure you give us a text when you get home and she has to think about a lot of different things than i have to think about so that experience that never even would have occurred to me just by having a chat with my wife does occur to me and i i know this is annoying for women but sometimes you do have to jolt men into understanding what goes on because that's exactly what sandra jansen was doing was saying hey this is my experience and i'm going to make you see it i'm going to make you hear it and I think it was a really useful thing to do. Member statements are not usually very interesting. I mean, that presumably is the reason that Stuart and Emma were not paying attention because yeah. because <laughs> member statements are usually very rote and bland, they, and yeah, you know, and, and you have to assume that the member statement by somebody who's just crossed the floor might be more interesting than average. But you know, on Saturday Night Live, they call that the cold open, and when Sandra Jansen just stood up and the first words out of her mouth, without any kind of preamble or introduction, were just "you traitorous bitch," and so yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. you're you're just oh, okay, not your typical member statement then. Uh, and, and, and I remember seeing that tweet at her directly uh, in the when she announced her floor crossing. I remember seeing that and thinking, not cool, not cool. The thing is, now think about this, parliamentary language is so important. Normally, this would not fly at all in the legislature. I mean, we saw last week in the House of Commons in Ottawa when the word fart raised a kerfuffle, right? So this is the level, This, I mean, that's why this was so significant, I think, and so impactful is because normally somebody would stand up and object to these words being said on the floor of the legislature. This time, nobody did, right? They, they all understood the point. Yeah, what happened instead was everyone got up and gave her a standing ovation. There was not a single... An- when she said that, as, as I was listening to this in my office going, what? I actually dropped my first F-bomb on Twitter. I do it a lot in real life, but it, it, it just 
floored me so much I had no other words <laughs> well and I hope that this act I think that it's important that she did this because then I think it also helps everyone understand why when she has had this extra level of security added there are good reasons for it if we're kind of seeing the highest level of the worst in her uh, opening which, in this inner which, statement which we're here. not frankly I mean she, no she, she told me afterwards I was speaking to her and she said I said how did you choose and she went you know what the sad thing is I had so many more powerful and different things I could have chosen and it's just mm-hmm. they're the ones I went with it's in it she's like it's a sad affront that I had so many choices for that speech. yeah so, so I'm glad the government is taking steps to make sure that uh, she is protected I think it's important that she have that cover that she need at this point in time and i hope that we would do this for any mla from any party who needed this kind of assistance of course ironically people have been mocking her on twitter all week saying it's outrageous that she's getting this security and she's a big crybaby and like guys i think you're not getting the point here uh they don't assign security details uh, on a whim they don't i mean this is this is unprecedented for somebody other than the premier, I think, to have this level of security and that they made it public that, that they're doing this. Uh, they do risk assessment. I mean, the people who, who do those security details take their jobs extremely seriously. Uh, and over the years that I've covered different premiers, I've seen those security details. Uh, they, they're professionals. Uh, this is not a joke. This is not something that they do for kicks and giggles. Uh, so... You know, I assume that if they have assigned a security detail to Jansen, that there's a reason for it. And, you know, when I see people then turning around on Twitter and making a joke out of it, uh, I don't think the sheriff's department is laughing. And I think it is worth remembering that just this week, this story, the Sandra Jansen story was picked up by the BBC because the end of the court case about the MP Joe Cox, who was killed, um, that is a very real circumstance. And, you know, I, I... I would hate to think that before it happened, people were, you know, treating security and harassment with the same kind of frivolousness that you see happening on Twitter. I mean, these are real issues and these are public figures. And I think you have to take it seriously. One of the big things, too, that um, that Sandra Jansen raised was not just what she's getting personally on Twitter, but she made it a plea to all politicians of all stripes to stand up and say, no, we're not going to put up with this because she, I think, feels that there's enabling happening on Twitter and on Facebook when it's posted on an MLA's Facebook page, you know, threats, terrible language. They're not standing up and saying, hey, dude, not okay. Hey, that is not okay. And that was her plea. And actually, I'm going to throw in here as well, Wild Rose MLA Nathan Cooper yesterday got up in the house and what seemed as though it was a direct response to Sandra Jansen's speech said, I'm standing up here today and I'm saying I will not put up with this. I will not let it stand. I will take a stand against this, which is exactly what Jansen had asked for. And he's from the Wild Rose. So I Mm -hmm. thought that was an extremely powerful thing that he did in response yesterday. What I'm really struggling with, though, is that if people don't get this now, how on earth do you get through to them? And I don't have an answer for that. I'm, I'm throwing that out there. I mean, you can, I guess, talk back to it all you want. But I mean, I just, I'm really struggling with it. And I'm so frustrated that that uh, the online world has become so, so toxic and seems to have allowed this to come back into like normal day-to-day conversation in a way that, you know, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have thought was appropriate. So I, I don't have a solution. I, I, I hope maybe some of our listeners might have some suggestions about 
what they think should be done. I mean, I think that the people who are out there running their mouths, if they don't like how things are running, they ought to get up and put their own face out there, their face and their ideas and their name and run for office themselves. That, to me, is a solution rather than talking trash about people. And, and let it be said, this isn't just about misogyny. I mean, the misogyny ramps it up. But, you know, I had people contact me and say, well, you know, when the Wild Rose crossed the floor, uh, even the male, I mean, there was misogyny directed towards Daniel Smith, but even the male members who crossed the floor uh, received abuse. And somebody sent me pictures of, you know, one of the candidate's signs that had been attacked and mutilated and, you know, and threats. I mean, this is not just about not being mean to girls. This is about, you know, being a decent human being. being, a, being I would say. Yeah. You know, being a decent human being. It is not okay. It is not okay when people on the left say things like this about Michelle Rempel or Ronna Ambrose mm-hmm. or Danielle Smith. This is, th- nobody's getting a jail, get out of jail free card here. Uh, this isn't a left-right thing, and this isn't a male-female thing. This is a don't be, you know, don't don't be a word I can't say on the on the podcast. You, you don't, can. Don't, don't, you know. I did tweet that the other day. You I know? said, well, you can check my Twitter feed, <laughs> but basically, uh. if people stop being such dicks, the world would be a way better place. Are we allowed to say that? I guess we're not on the radio. I think we're allowed to say anything. I just said it. I Can I just interject to say, uh, last night I was pretty late at the legislature, and I just happened to be coming around a corner when a prominent cabinet minister was also coming up some stairs and around the corner. <laughs> she didn't see me, but she was swearing so well that I wish I could tell you it was, but I feel like saying the name of an overheard conversation isn't an ethical thing to do, but... You should rest assured that the cabinet ministers swear as well as we do. Mm-hmm. I found that out last night. <laughs> when you texted me, I, was just, I laughed and I laughed. But, you know, this is, this is not. I mean, as Sarah said, I mean, I mean how, how is it that in 2016 we have to have a conversation where we say, don't threaten to kill your political opponent? Because, you know, the last person who did that was Aaron Byrne. It didn't go well. well I want to switch gears to power. It's been all power all the time. We've had, this week has just been like, Power, power, hey, power, power, poo, poo, pew, power. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually can't. I have been unable to keep up with all the announcements going on about power. So I'm really hoping that Stuart and Emma and Paula <laughs> yeah, here can, well. can help me out because I'm like, I, I, I kind of, when I went to pay my energy bill the other day, I thought, huh, I wonder how all these announcements will affect my bill. And then I thought, hmm, <laughs> well, isn't it think lucky? about that a bit more. <laughs> isn't it lucky that Stuart Thompson's here with us today? Because <laughs> <laughs> you know what he wrote yeah. yesterday. Well, I was also swearing last night, um, so I can't judge <laughs> any cabinet ministers. Um, so, yeah, it has been, It's this week has been extraordinary. And I was thinking about, do you remember that? photo of the NDP caucus before the election where it was like Rachel Notley and Darren Billis and Mason and who was the there was a fourth one David Egan David Egan and and they were on a blanket at the folk fest together and they were all happy and they looked like university students it's a fantastic photo I'll check it out but I was thinking that is the NDP from two years ago and now they have just done some of the most massive market shifting totally flipped the system kind of changes to our power system it this is going to be like a decades long change probably longer um so i'll try and sum it up in about two minutes <laughs> thank you Tomo. um but uh, it is it's hard to understate how big of a change this is and how much they're doing to move towards renewables right now so 
the first thing they did this week was they put a cap on the electricity rates and i believe that it's 6.8 6.8 cents per kilowatt hour um so that is a four-year cap and it's really i think designed to be a bridge to this new system that they announced on wednesday um so the main feature of our current system which is an energy only system um is very volatile so that's why in the summer when there's like a lot of acs going and you know it's it's kind of like high energy time the prices tend to swing a lot and it happens in the winter too um, and that is what encourages people to invest in our system because they know there's going to be some dizzy high prices at some point and they can make some money um, but I, I think as far back we were in the briefing and they said uh, aso the can you tell us what ASO stands for? Alberta, Alberta Electric Electrical System Operator. Operator. <laughs> there we go. Uh, we actually rehearsed that. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we uh, had it in like a chord, like a chorus. Uh, ASO had been worried about this since the financial crisis in 08, 09. And they were worried that our system wasn't going to be worthy of investment down the road. And what that would actually mean is that you would flick on the light switch and the lights wouldn't come on. So they were worried about this in the first place. But then with all of the climate plan stuff the NDP is doing. They're putting a price on carbon. They are shifting towards renewables. And one of the features of renewables is that, for example, solar, it it's only going to happen when the sun's out. So they say that's not firm energy. It's energy that only happens in certain times. So all these things together made them, I think, a, a little worried about our system and how it was going to work. And a lot of jurisdictions across uh, the world, uh, North America and the world, have been switching over to what they call a capacity market. So that was the change on Wednesday. The capacity market means there's a, uh, a payment at an auction to keep a certain amount of capacity in the system, meaning the lights will always go on. You're going to see two charges in your bill or one charge, which includes two charges, one for the energy you consume and one for that capacity that always has to be there. And the big change there is that it takes away that volatility. So they're hoping that prices will be stable. They expect them to rise, but they expected that to happen anyways because we're having record low prices right now. And uh, it just, I think, would be a natural pull of the market. They'd be rising anyways. So the government hopes that it won't actually go up much more than it would have anyways. Uh, and then the big change yesterday was they're phasing out all those coal plants by 2030. So that created a problem in you've got a coal plant that goes until 2060 you can't just close it there's people who work there there's companies who expected to make money off of that plant for a long time so they've uh, they've basically gotten a, a settlement at transition money of about 1.35 billion dollars uh, it's 97 million dollars a year for 14 years so that will go towards the companies to make up for what they lose and also to the communities to help get some jobs there uh, and can I say one more thing about you PPAs? You sure can, because uh, <laughs> technical briefings have basically been our lives this week. So, Stuart, this was the most exciting yeah. moment at any technical briefing. Well, we were at the briefing yesterday, and we were pretty sure, I'm sure you guys, if you listen to this podcast, you're probably aware of the power purchase agreement controversy where a lot of the NDP's plans have made these agreements by the power companies uh more unprofitable is the word I think that we've used. Um, so the agreements became not profitable. The company said, hey, we've got a clause. We can give this back to you. You guys are going to take our losses. It would have cost the government a lot of money. Um, so now it's still going to cost them a lot of money because they've gotten a settlement with these companies, which um, they had a lawsuit in I the works. I guess it was like all of them except NMAX? Is uh, that, that seems to be the case. Um, they have a, a, 
a, a firm agreement with um, Capital Power, and that's the only firm one. And they've tentative, tentative agreements about two more, and then NMAX is still in talks. Um, so what that means is we can use the Capital Power one as a template. They're going to pay some money to the balancing pool, which runs these agreements, and the government will essentially run these contracts through the balancing pool. Um, they are money losing contracts because the, the contracts aren't profitable anymore. So one economist, Trevor Toman out of Calgary, he was estimating it's going to cost about a billion dollars, this whole thing. Uh, so we, Emma and I were, were at the time thinking this, this settlement's going to happen soon because it's all happening this week. And mm -hmm. in the middle of our briefing about the coal transition, <laughs> an assistant deputy minister actually came running in in the middle of it. It already started 45 minutes late. He sat down. He was a little out of breath. And they read us the terms of this agreement and added another hour or two of work. <laughs> to wow. and, so but, live, live, you know. Yeah, it was really something. Live, real-time news. So does this take the lawsuits off the table then, the government's lawsuit they're on not, this issue? They're not off the table yet, but, for example, NMAX is still in negotiations, um, uh, but it looks like that they're pretty confident that that's going to be the case. And one thing I will say, well, there's been a lot of talk about retroactive legislation to cancel these power contracts. We were talking about this. It does seem like if you are negotiating with a company, that's a pretty good thing to have in your favor that you could negotiate them. You could legislate them to a zero dollar settlement. And it did leak at a time about a week before the settlement actually happened. So I wonder if maybe that was the last little shove <laughs> they that's needed. Been the, that's been the accusation been thrown around question period for sure. Like, are you strong arming them, NDP? Are you using this as a giant club to bat them over the head in negotiations? Yes. yes. <laughs> and yes, I, funnily I, enough, Paul, that was not the answer <laughs> that they gave in QP. Shocking, yeah. I know. I would note the timing, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one, one cannot talk about matters that are currently before the courts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but no, I mean, th th these are three extraordinarily different, interrelated, and important things. I mean, the first one reverses a policy that goes back to the days of Ralph Klein and Steve West, which was to deregulate Alberta's power market. And Alberta's power market is very different than that in, say, Quebec or Ontario or British Columbia. Or where, anywhere else or, except or, Texas. Or, yes. I mean, because Alberta never had state-owned, state-run power production. I mean, we don't have something like Hydro-Ontario or Hydro-Quebec or, you know, uh, BC Power. We, we had private companies always, and under social credit, we had these private companies that had a regulated rate, uh, gave them a safe, stable rate of return, gave us a really boring, stable energy market. Uh, and sort of in the midst of all the Enron craziness, the Alberta government decided we shouldn't have a, people call it privatizing, it wasn't private, it was always private. So what they did was they unregulated it. And the idea was that they would bring more capacity into the market because you would encourage small producers, co-gen people, uh, green power, you would get more capacity online because you would create a, a market situation that was very exciting for people. The trouble with exciting electricity markets um, is that excitement is not really good for your good stable supply of power or your good stable price. So deregulation has always been a bit 
rocky. Uh, and in, so then you had to sort of create all of these checks and balances to kind of smooth out the edges of it so it wouldn't really be a wholly deregulated market. So yeah, we ended up having rebates for a while provided yeah. by, the, by the provincial government. Yeah, so on, the Klein bucks, you know, I mean, so it's never, it's never entirely worked. That said, it's pretty hard to unscramble an omelet and re-regulating it now. Um, well, they're not uh, re-regulating it. No, and they did well, go to yeah, pains to say... In the second day of technical briefings, they said, some of the media have said this is re-regulation. <laughs> it is not. Let me tell you why. That was the second sentence out of the guy's right. mouth. And so, so what, I just feel so what, so what, so what did they say? Why is this not re-regulation? I stopped listening after that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess... They are I mean, using market principles to do all of the private investment. So they'll say, yeah. this is a market-based... All they're doing is paying people through an auction to provide that capacity. Right. So, you know, and and and, and, and they're and, and they're and they're capping prices. So, yeah. you know, I mean they're they're you know, by capping prices they're obviously trying to avoid the they're situation capping, that they're capping prices to the individual homeowners, right? But they talked about how if prices go higher, money from the carbon tax will help offset that. Is that not that correct? That was one of the ideas that they're throwing about they're throwing out there because it's worth noting that they want to have this cap in place. However, there are no firm plans exactly on how they will execute that. They've said, they said on Monday, or was it Tuesday? <laughs> Who knows anymore? Um, in the technical briefing about the electricity price cap, that they were going to the market, they were going to the sector, and they were going to figure out exactly how that, how that would work. Because there are a lot of options on the table. But yes, you're correct. One of them is using the money from the carbon tax carbon levy if you're the NDP. Yeah, well, one thing to note too, and this confused me until a reporter asked a question, the very last question of the presser, and I would have been wrong about this, but that transition money paid to coal companies, it's coming from the carbon levy, but not the new one starting in January. It's from the old one, the $15 one that's on heavy emitters. So they're, what they're saying is, we're just taking the money from the bad electricity and we're putting it into good electricity and that's kind of the theme of all this now i have to say i think this coal deal on paper at least looks very clever because remember that the whole reason that we're getting out of coal isn't just so that we can have solar energy and have you know flowers and butterflies uh, i mean getting rid of coal was a strategic choice to give us more quote-unquote social license to produce oil I mean, we have to reduce emissions somehow. Going after coal is easier than going after oil because coal is icky. Uh, I mean, it's super cheap. It's super reliable, uh, but it's not only carbon intensive, but it produces other kinds of airborne pollutants, which having just watched The Crown, uh, we all know that burning coal is not the best way for, for, for human health either. So by using the carbon levy dollars to pay off the coal electricity um, I mean that's a pretty neat conjuring trick and as I read it in the paper at first blush I thought oh well that th you know okay so we're gonna we're gonna compensate the power companies like capital power that have that have newer coal plants we're gonna compensate them with you know money that is already you know dates back to Stelmac right those yeah. those uh, those heavy emitter things um, that's a pretty cool that's a pretty cool trick. So that's not money that's coming out of, uh, you know, your income tax revenues. That's not money that's going to be added to your electricity bill. If they can, I mean, if it, 
if it's actually what it says it is in the paper, that struck me as pretty smart politics. We don't have much time left, but I do want to talk about um, Serenity, the four-year-old child who was in care and who uh, who died uh, tragically. This has come up a lot in the House this week. Paula did a lot of the work that actually broke this story. It's made Brian Jean burst into tears. It's made Rick McIver burst into tears. It's made so many people, I think, around the province just utterly heartbroken. Um, Paula, give us a really quick rundown about um, what happened and some of the things we've seen this week, if you could. Well, I mean, this has been one of the most difficult stories uh, emotionally, I think, that I've ever worked on. This is a story about a four-year-old girl who was uh, taken, first taken from her mother's custody, uh, then taken from a foster home where she was thriving, placed in a kinship care, private guardianship arrangement where she and her siblings... uh, uh, were cut off from contact with their birth mother. Um, after 11 months in this care, Serenity was taken to hospital. She weighed 18 pounds, which is the typical weight for a nine-month-old. She was four and a half and had been before this of normal body weight with no underlying medical conditions. She had suffered a catastrophic brain injury. She was hypothermic. And uh, some of the most disturbing things that I read in the medical records, genital bruising, pubic bruising, unusual bruising around her anus, said the medical records. Uh, What was even more shocking, I think, than the horrible uh, uh, medical state of her body is that two years after she died, there had been no autopsy completed. There had been no criminal charges. Uh, This week, RCMP told my colleague Claire Clancy that, you know, that they were, their investigation was on hold because they were waiting for more reports. Uh, So I was, I was really inspired when I saw the Wild Rose picking up this issue in question period, going very hard at the premier. I was uh, very disappointed in the response from Rachel Notley and her government, where they have looked ham-fisted and hard-hearted, where Rachel Notley this week effectively called Del Graff, the child advocate who first reported on Serenity's death, uh, basically either called him a liar or incompetent because she said that he had misrepresented uh, when he said that he'd been unable to get information from the medical examiner's office. It turned out that Del Graff was perfectly correct, and Sarah Hoffman, as deputy premier, had to come back into QP this week and apologize for the premier's misstatement. Uh, and I will say that I think Albertans who voted NDP in the last election, who voted for Rachel Notley, who remembered that she was the critic for the NDP on the human services file, have a right to be dis disappointed and disillusioned and angry because this is a, I mean, this child's death happened when the PCs were in government. Uh, most of these problems in the medical examiner's office, uh, which has been dealing with chaos and, and staff shortages, uh, were begun on the PCs watch. So I'm flabbergasted at the way Notley and her ministers have responded to this because this was their chance to step up and say, things are going to be different. I'm going to respond differently. And instead, as Sarah noted in a most excellent editorial this week, Rachel Notley's talking points sound precisely like they were written for all the other conservative ministers who've handled this file badly in years past. Rick McIver got up and asked for a joint party committee to actually look into these systemic issues. He had, he acknowledged previous governments have tried to do stuff. This government's tried to do stuff. None of it's ever worked. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Yeah, this is one of those stories that points to it's like a big knot big knot and there's different parts you have to pull apart because different parts of the system seem to have failed serenity at different points so it might be worth group of MLAs taking this 
responsibility on as a committee because then it remains in the public. I think what happens with this file, like many other things, but is it it comes up as when Karen Cleese and Darcy Hendon and, and, and Paula did their work on the Fatal Care series in 2013, where at that point we were just working to... F- they, they, there was so much secrecy around the system we didn't even know the numbers of children who had died in care over the years and there weren't even particularly good record keeping and they had to do a lot of work through freedom of information to get that number so they came up with a number in 2013 that in the past what was it 11 12 years 145 children had died well then the human services minister at the time Manmeet Buller took responsibility of this file and he really stepped up and he started to give more information and he did make some changes he and he he revealed the fact that hundreds and yeah 741 children in fact with some connection to the system had died now some of those would have been through illness some of those would have been through suicide some of those would have been through car accident but the point was there was it was this it was an astonishing number the issue that they made some progress with a bit of progress with was secrecy Three years ago, we could not have said Serenity's real first name out loud without risking court action. We couldn't have run her photographs, yeah. which were so very revealing. Parents could not talk about their children. So the, the, the positive thing is that now parents and family members and the public can talk about the names of children. But there are still these, there are still all kinds of other complicated problems that clearly with the system this case has raised, including the fact that is there enough training or oversight of kinship care? Now, the way it is set up right now has been established for a whole host of reasons, but I think there are real questions about, is that good enough? Paula has also, through her reporting, shown there are some questions about the medical examiner's office. Two years to complete an autopsy, there they were Paula asked, and in the legislature they asked some good follow-up questions about how often does this happen that it takes up to two years to complete the reporting of an autopsy? So basically bring the autopsy to its full conclusions where that you can then hand to police and say, okay, this is our conclusion as to cause of death and the various factors. Um, they can't answer that. And that seems to me like some pretty basic statistical information somebody ought to be able to tell us. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what I learned this week, and this is shocking, is that uh, 25% of autopsies in Alberta last year took more than six months to complete. And I've seen benchmarks from Ontario where the benchmark there is that they aim to do 90% of autopsies within 90 days. So here we have some autopsies that are taking a year and longer. And Serenities isn't the only death of a child in care where the autopsy has taken an extraordinary length of time. But, you know... I will say this, I have never seen a public or political response to a story I've done like this ever before, and I've been writing about the deaths of children in care for a very long time. And I think, you know, as Sarah said, when you tell people that 740 kids died, it's too many kids. People can't, people can't relate to that. They can't imagine that. That just becomes a number. I was able to tell people Serenity's individual story. I was able to show them pictures of her what she looked like as a healthy, happy three-year-old, and pictures taken later when she was already malnourished but not, but but still, uh, still alive. And I think people have related to her story in a way that they never have before because we've been able to give specific details, we've been able to humanize her story, and it's become a microcosm for a crisis that's been ongoing in this province for, you know, probably 70 years in our child welfare system. And of course why this matters is there's about 10,000 children currently 
in care or with some form in some kind of relationship with human services. So those are children who we need to take care of and we need to make sure that there isn't a systemic breakdown that is going to lead to harm to other children. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Now to our regular segment, good stuff from the gallery. Uh, Sarah, do you have anything for us this week? I do. I have a trio of recommendations, and it is related to electronic voting and uh, potentially, you know, the impact on the U.S. election. New York Times Magazine uh, reported a story that a group of computer science experts are urging the Clinton campaign to challenge election results in three swing states because concerns they have about I guess, for lack of a better term, if the election was hacked, basically, if there was problems with the electronic voting machines in some counties, because they say there may be some discrepancies. Now, maybe this is all hypothetical. So one of the and then so as a companion to that, I think you should read a piece by J. Alex Halderman, who is one of the computer science guys, a real smart guy in this world of electronic geek we would say yeah he <laughs> he's got a piece on medium and he basically says you know want to know if the election was hacked look at the ballot so he goes into much more detail and he says you know some of the information in this new york magazine piece wasn't quite right and he he lays out his case about why he thinks there at the very least needs to be an audit and then i'm going to recommend a piece that will be in saturday's journal and uh, online in the morning by university of alberta's dean of science jonathan schaefer who's commenting on all of this stuff and got me thinking about this and it's not because just be- he's a computer he's, yes. he's the king of computer geeks yes and so it's not just because of the u.s election that i think you should read this but because reading all this stuff has actually changed how i have been thinking about electronic voting i was kind of thinking oh yeah why don't we just go to this and now i'm like oh maybe paper is the way to go what do you got for us i'm going to suggest something completely f- delightfully frivolous because we need it uh, and this is a piece that our a former Edmonton Journal colleague, Richard Warnica, who's now at National Post, has done an analysis pegged to the Gilmore Girls uh, uh, reboot about what happened to Logan's dad's newspaper empire. Uh, remember, if you've watched, if you watched Netflix, that's fantastic. Uh, R- Rory's third girl, uh, third boyfriend, Logan, uh, was the heir of a major newspaper empire. So Richard Warnica does an analysis of what he thinks may have happened. Uh, to the, the, the Heinzbergers uh, newspaper empire in the intervening years. And so it's a way of looking at uh, the impact of the digital economy on newspapers. So in some ways, it's an extremely serious and important piece. But um, Richard is such a fanboy of the Gilmore Girls. It is just a delight to read. So if you want to understand, if you want to understand why I feel great empathy with coal miners, um, you can read Richard Warnick's piece about the death of regional newspapers and the Gilmore Girls. As someone who's probably going to binge watch the next season of Gilmore Girls this weekend, I'm totally going to read that. I've been been Uh, cramming season one the past uh, (laughs) past couple weeks just to refresh Uh, myself. I'm just going to look to the New York Times as well. It's a really interesting article called Perils of Climate Change Could Swamp Coastal Real Estate. And it's a really, really interesting look at uh, how people are moving away from wanting those coastal front like coastal houses now because of the amount of waves that are coming through, the huge storms, the amount of damage that's being sustained in those and the huge hit that is happening to the real estate industry and as such the economic impacting, especially because in Australia we have those big storms all the time that just drag entire swimming pools out into the ocean. It's it's a really great read. Stuart? Uh, I think you should read in McLean's a piece by my friend Jason Marksoff. Um, he kind of zoomed out on this whole Jason Kenney leadership race, and he was wondering why do all these kind of PC party stalwarts who you wouldn't think would align with Jason Kenney are supporting him. And his answer is he's marching them towards power, delicious power. And that's Jason's words. It's a great piece. You should give it a read. Love it. 
Thanks for joining me, guys. This was a, a long podcast. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining me. We'll be back next week um, at this same time. Sarah O'Donnell, Paula Simons, Stuart Thompson, and also fearless photographer Ian, who is here once again filming a chunk of this to put online at edmontonjournal.com where you can find all of our past episodes. And I guess in the future, our future episodes, you can also find it on iTunes, TuneIn Radio and our SoundCloud channel. You can subscribe to them, which uh, we would love it if you did that. You can join us again this time next week at the Press Gallery.